0: Men, children can be dismissed for children's church. Follow Dave Kaminsky there. Get out your blue outline, your Bible pen, whatever you need. You may have noticed we are. Taking a little diversion out of John today, so uh, Dave just gave me the freedom to pick whatever I wanted from the scripture, and so I grabbed some really tough verses from Galatians. So we're in Galatians 5, 1 through 6 today, it should be printed in your bulletin. I really enjoy coming down and singing and not leading. I should do that more often. So, David Letterman was interviewing John McCain recently. And you probably know that that John McCain, senator from Arizona, is thinking about running for president, Republican nomination in 2008. And I didn't hear much of the interview, but at one point, David Letterman asked him, Well, things don't work out. Would you accept the vice presidential nomination? And McCain answered, You know, I spent all those years in a North Vietnamese prison camp, kept in the dark, fed scraps. Why the heck would I want to do that all over again? (laughs) That was a good line, and I guess he doesn't have much stock for the vice presidency, but kind of gives us a good introduction this morning. And I read another story about a man named Mordecai Venunu, who spent 18 years in an Israeli prison, over 11 of that in solitary confinement. I guess he uh, gave away the secret of Israel's nuclear arms, and uh, so they tried him and convicted him, and he spent 18 years in prison. And in 2004... He was released from there, but I read an article that was written at that time, and they said, yes, he's out, but he's probably headed to Scotland. I guess that's where he's from, and he's probably going straight back to jail there. Um, I got an update. I found his website. He said he's still in Israel fighting for his freedom, and he's appealing it through the courts, and, and as of now, I think he hasn't been put back in prison. But put yourself in that situation. Imagine yourself a prisoner for many, many years, a POW maybe, a prisoner of war, a slave of some kind. And you are given your freedom only to have it snatched away, headed right back to prison. I almost feel like it would be better not to be, have even been given a glimpse of freedom. Than to be, think you're free, but back in. So today's passage, the Apostle Paul is speaking to people who have left captivity but are headed straight back to it, and they are taking it on willingly. It's not a physical captivity, it was a spiritual captivity, and Paul is pleading with them, don't Know it. Don't give up your freedom and take on the yoke of slavery again. So let's hear from Galatians 5, 1 through 6. And I want us, if you have your uh if, if you have an English standard version or if you have the bulletin, read the first phrase with me. Just humor me. First seven words. Okay, let's say those all together and then I'll read the rest of it. Uh, verse 1, ready? For freedom, Christ has set us free. No, no, that's all I want from you. Thanks. I wanted us to say that together. Thanks. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man If you haven't studied Galatians, it's not the easiest book. It's not the easiest letter that Paul wrote. And I'm sure if we had been doing a series that you would really understand it by this point, Dave would have explained the background. So let me just catch up to speed a little bit on the situation that Paul is referring to. The main gist is that these churches in Galatia had a lot of non Jewish believers called them Gentiles. And they had come to faith in Christ. But now there was a question about how they were going to be treated, how they were going to act. You see, Christianity, as we know, grew out of Judaism, right? And we didn't throw away the Old Testament. We kept it. And Jesus and Paul and the early disciples and many of the early converts were all Jewish. But we know that there was this new thing sprouting from it, called Christianity. And you know that the old way that a convert was brought into to Judaism was that the males were circumcised. And that was an outward way of showing that they were submitting to the law and becoming a Jew. Now we know that we're not really facing that anymore. I don't think anybody's ever told you that's how you become a Christian, because we know now that's that's how you became a Jew. We do something differently when someone converts to Christianity. Right? We baptize them. Men and women and children. But this was a time of transition. And it was a little unclear what was going to happen. And these Jewish believers, possibly unbelievers in Christ, um, because Paul calls them uh, false brothers at one point, but he says these Jewish men had come in and said, listen, you Gentiles, you have to get circumcised. You have to come under the law. You have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. And this is where Paul makes his stand he says, no, absolutely not. You don't have to do that. Here's, um, if you back up into Galatians chapter 2, 3 through 5, he actually describes what happened with his uh, fellow traveler Titus. He says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Timothy said, no way. I'm not putting Titus under the law. And it's not just that... Okay, we're changing the symbol. Okay, now we're not circumcising, we're baptizing. Circumcision meant so much more. It meant literally taking on the old law. And there's a sense, Paul says, you are trying to earn your salvation. You are trying to do enough good things to win God's approval. And where does that leave you? Look at verse two. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. See, there's a really important reason, aside from the fact that it's true, that we continue to teach that Jesus lived a sinless life. It's because he fulfilled the law for us, in place of us, so that we don't have to Follow the law and fulfill the law in order to be saved. And so if you say, I've got to earn it. I've got to do it. I've got to do enough good things and and avoid the bad things in order to be saved. You're saying that Jesus' perfect life and his death mean nothing. So what is this freedom that Paul talks about? Let's back up to that phrase that we said together. Freedom, Christ has set us free. Martin Luther said that this is when a man is assured in his heart that God neither is nor will be angry with him, but will be forever a merciful and loving father to him because of the blood of Christ. We're free from God's wrath We're free from the law, sin, death, the devil, and hell. That is a great freedom. To illustrate that, Steve Brown told a story about Abraham Lincoln. And I'm not sure if it's true. I'm not sure if it's one of those, you know, George Washington never told a lie, chopped down the cherry tree. I don't know if it's a fable, if it really happened. But he said that Lincoln went to a slave auction and he saw a woman there being auctioned off and he felt pity and he was moved to bid on her and won the auction and as he walked off with her he turned to her and said you're free she said what does that mean it means you're free does that mean I can say whatever I want to say yes replied Lincoln smiling it means you can say whatever you want to say Does it mean, she asked incredulously, that I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does it mean, the woman said hesitantly, that I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, it means you are free and can go wherever you want to go. Then, said the young woman with tears in her eyes, I think I'll go with you. And this is what God has done for us. It is what the Christian faith is all about. We have been bought with a price, the price of God's own son. We have a new master now, one who, once he's paid for us, sets us free. Now that's an imperfect analogy to us because we are adopted as sons and daughters. It's even a greater reward. but I think it gets the point across that God buys us and then frees us. Continuing on, Steve Brown in in his book, A Scandalous Freedom, good read. Sets up a little quick question and answer. And I want you to kind of test your reaction to these things. Because I think our default setting is to say, no, that's too easy. Grace can't be that forgiving. Listen to what he says. Does being free mean that if I don't do what God says, He will still love me? Answer, yes, that is exactly what it means. You might get hurt and regret what you've done, but you can do it and He won't stop loving you. You won't lose your salvation. You won't get kicked out of the kingdom. Now, Steve and I would be excommunicated in some denominations for believing that, but thankfully not ours. But we have a hard time accepting that. Next question, does being free mean that God is pleased with whatever I do, no matter what it is? Steve says, of course not. God feels pleased when we do what he asks of us, but because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, he won't be angry with you, nor will he ever condemn you. Next question, does being free mean that when Christians are really upset with me, God isn't? Yes, does being free mean that his love and grace are without condition, totally? Yes, that's exactly what it means. We are free from those things that I quoted Luther from. We're free from judgment and hell. We also have a lot of areas of Christian freedom, and we can we could talk about that for a while. We've had sermons here, I remember, at the end of Romans, we talked about what are we at liberty to do, and um, you know, can we drink alcohol as an adult or not? Will that offend a brother? We're not going to spend much time with that. And if you read further in Galatians 5, it says, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Of course, there's still choices and responsibility with freedom, but... Let's not limit our freedom. And, and Paul is getting into another aspect of freedom. One that I think is a little touchy, a little tough. But I'm going to say it like this. Our freedom in Christ is freedom from each other. Let me, let me back up and caveat that a little because I believe strongly in living in community. And that we are called as brothers and sisters to support each other. To rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And and even to confront gently and rebuke with, with the scriptures. And I am all for giving and receiving godly counsel and pastoral and elder leadership. I believe in all that stuff. God gave us each other to help each other. But... Ultimately, we are free from each other because we have one boss, one person that we are ultimately going to be accountable for. And that is God, not each other. I think it's easy for us to set up an environment like what Paul was attacking there. It's easy for us to kind of put our own preferences and our own yoke on other people. Parents know, Christian parents know, a lot of people will tell you how to raise your kids, how to school them, how many you should have had. I've I've heard people say if you have too many, they're just irresponsible. That's not godly. If you don't have enough, you're not fulfilling the creation mandate. You know what? Thanks for the Godly advice, but I'll work that out with my spouse and God. You don't have to take that on. What kind of entertainment you take in, that's ultimately a matter of your conscience before God. If the youth pastor tells you you would be a great youth leader, he's probably right, but you don't have to be. You don't have to go on the youth retreat with him. Laura Goodson's not here. That's good. I've talked her into it already. Lane Hefner was one of the elders that was here when I first got here five years ago. And probably most of you know him. Some of you haven't met him yet. He said something to me real early on that really freed me up. He said, listen, Dave, people are going to try to tell you what to do, how to run your ministry, what needs to be done. Listen, that's fine. What I want you to do is this. You Go to Jesus. You go to your boss first and ask him. And then you come tell us. And we'll work from there. Okay, does that mean I'm totally independent of the session and not accountable to the parents? Of course not. But ultimately, I get my marching orders from God. And so do you. And so we are free of being enslaved by what everyone else thinks our lives should look like. And kids and teens, that doesn't free you from your parents' authority, by the way. <laughs> God's telling me not to do homework. <laughs> but Paul says... Believers in Galatia, you are free in Christ. Don't let them put you in slavery. Believers in Loudoun County, in Northern Virginia, you are free in Christ. The temptation to win our own salvation, to keep earning it, to keep striving and justifying ourselves is so strong I think it gets us in very subtle ways. And I want to examine one way that that happens. And I, I know I think I've been guilty of this thinking. I read a sermon by John Piper uh, to get ready for this. And it really shed some light on this. He, he identified what he calls the gratitude ethic. Okay, And it goes something like this. God has done so much for me that I will devote my life to paying back my debt, even though I know I'll never be able to completely. And even though most Christians who work out of this gratitude ethic would say that they're not trying to earn their salvation, nevertheless, when they start working for God because he has given them so much, it's very easy to begin to think of God's free gift as a loan to be repaid, or as advanced wages to be earned. So the gratitude ethic tends to put you in the position of a debtor instead of a son or a daughter. And that is slavery. And he talked about three reasons why he just keeps fleshing them out. Number one, genuine gratitude comes because we don't have to pay anything back. How many of you have seen Extreme Makeover Home Edition? All right, Kath and I watch that a lot on Sunday nights. And it, if you've seen it once, you've, you've seen them all because they kind of follow a similar theme. All right, the uh, family's had some hardship of some kind. And so Ty Pennington and his team of contractors, they come in and they they usually demolish the house or they just rip it up and they give them a brand new house. And so the ending, the last 15 minutes where you're supposed to be crying with them, um, the the family's been at Disney World or something and they come in on a bus and they can't see the house and the uh, the bus blocks it. And then Ty says, okay, bus driver, move that bus, right? So they pull out and their, you know, 500 square foot house has been turned into a 10,000 square foot mansion. And every week, man, they yeah, they start jumping up and down and crying and hugging Ty and everything. And then then they get a a tour of the house. And the mom's got a kitchen as big as this auditorium. And if the kid's into music, you know, he's got like a line of guitars and a recording studio and somebody else is into sports. They have like a swimming pool for their bathtub or something. I mean it you know, they just make these unbelievable houses. And almost every time, if they had a mortgage, CBS or the contractors, they paid off. And they say, this is your new house. And you don't have to pay for it. And we're just giving it to you. And these people, man, you see the genuine thankfulness and gratitude. They are just stunned by how amazing that is. That's a good picture. Um, Another picture Use this, okay, it's, it's not Valentine's Day, it's not my anniversary, but for some reason I, I bring my wife flowers, okay? And I just show up on a random Tuesday, honey, I love you, here's some flowers. Well, how would I feel if she said, oh, thanks, I love them, I'll pay you back. I think I'd be a little offended by that. I didn't give you that to pay me back. I gave them to you because I love you. Just enjoy them. It's not true thankfulness. You pay it back. I mean, when I write my mortgage check, I'm not jumping up and down like those uh, people on Extreme Makeover. I mean, I'm thankful for my house, but that's a tough check to write. We can't pay God back. We can't even start. God's given you forgiveness in heaven. And you think that somehow you're going to pay that back? I mean, you can try whatever you want. Go out to the desert. Live a life of no pleasure. Pluck out your eye if it offends you. You know, Take Jesus really literally. Uh, fast for the rest of your life. Do any of that stuff. You are not going to pay God back. You're just going to wreck your body. I'm not saying there's no place for spiritual disciplines, but there is no way you can pay God back for what he did. The second the problem with this gratitude ethic is that Jesus sacrificed on the cross. Remember what we're saying? It is finished. And that word has the connotation to tell us die of it is paid in full. It hasn't been partially paid, and you got to pay the rest. Some of your sins are forgiven, but you got to do the rest, work them off. No, your life is totally ransomed. Jesus' death is completely acceptable as a substitute for your sins. Nothing you can do will add to your salvation. And finally, John Piper says, hey, without Christ, we can do nothing. So even if we think we're giving a gift to God, it's because God has given us The ability to do that. I think Dave's told the story before where a a young boy said, Daddy, I want to get you a gift. Can I have $10? And he goes and buys his dad a gift. Dad loves the gift, but he knows he bought it. It was his money that paid for it, right? That's God to us. He gives us the ability to offer him gifts. So this, you know, think through how much you've seen your Christian life in terms of paying back a debt. And be free of that. I mean, if you came to worship today, there's going to be a whole lot different uh, going on in your mind. If you are sitting there, God, I'm singing this song because I owe you. I'm checking it off. It's, It's one more thing I can do to pay you back. Versus, God, thank you so much. I can never repay you. And I just acknowledge that you are awesome. Your worship will be so much more free and so much more joyful if you don't operate from a, a position of debt and trying to pay back. God, of course you owe God. But the point is, you can't ever pay it back. So enjoy your free gift and enjoy God. Now there's a small phrase in this passage that I want to spend a little time with because I think we use it differently than Paul did and I think it reveals a little something about us. Paul says that you have fallen away from grace. You see that? I think it's verse 4. You who would be justified the law, by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Well, let's think about how we use that phrase. How how I've usually heard that phrase is when a Christian leader, a pastor, a musician, an evangelist has sinned really badly that they've lost their ministry. Okay, I remember back... When uh, Amy Grant and Sandy Patty were the big Christian music stars and they both had affairs and divorces and it was messy and they fell from grace, is what we called it sometimes. Or Jim Baker, he lost his ministry and went to prison over financial stuff and he fell from grace. Or more recently, Ted Haggard fell from grace, lost his ministry. And I got this idea from an article by Ed Young, a pastor in Texas, and he said, you know what, we tip our hands theologically when we use that phrase in that way. Because what we're saying is that grace is up here, and we either have to earn it, or once we've got it, we've got to hold on to it by not sinning. Or we've got to keep earning it. We've got to keep doing good enough things or else we're going to fall away from it. You and I know that's not what grace is. If anything, hopefully these people who sinned so badly and lost their ministry, hopefully they fell into grace. Because what's left after you lose your ministry, your job, maybe you're in prison, your family deserts you, Everything in your life is taken away. What's left? But God's grace. God's love and forgiveness. It's still there. We don't don't fall away from it and lose it and God kicks us down. We fall in. Grace is what's there to hold us when we've lost all that. So we've got to see how Paul uses this. He's saying to fall away from grace means to take up the yoke of slavery, of self-righteousness, of trying to earn your salvation. That is when we discard grace. You all know who Bono is, the lead singer for U2. He was interviewed, uh, I think, for a book And he was interviewed by a a non-believer interviewer who he started talking about his views on religion, spirituality. And Bono said this, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company. A real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. Karma. The interviewer said, what, what do you mean? What's that? Bono explains that the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. And yet along comes this idea called grace to upend it all. Love interrupts if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my final judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding on to grace, holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. I thought that was a brilliant way to explain it to someone who didn't know anything about Christianity. And of course, we know that there are physical consequences to our sin. If I cheat on my taxes, I could go to prison. If I start a fight, there's a good chance I'll get hit back. We know that there are consequences to our sin. But we think that God... In our subconscious, we think that God operates from karma, that we have to do enough good things to earn eternal life. We have a hard time accepting that God works purely from grace. Grace is simply this not getting what you deserve, which is condemnation, and getting what you don't deserve. Forgiveness in heaven. So to sum it up, I would say to you, don't fall from grace. And when I say that, it has nothing to do with how little or how much you've sinned. It has everything to do with the idea that you have to cling to Christ As the sole source of your salvation. Don't fall away from it by trusting in your own works. Your own ability, your own obedience. Martin Luther was pretty candid usually. And he calls people who try to earn their own salvation the devil's martyr. We should pity them twice because... They are working so hard on this earth to earn their salvation, doing very difficult things and feeling guilty and condemned. And they still miss heaven. They're still separated from God, from eternity, without turning to Jesus, without depending on Him. So we should pity them twice. At least unbelievers who don't care enjoy This life. And on the contrary, true believers who trust in Christ, yes, we have troubles in this life, but we have the peace of Christ. And we have the grace that catches us no matter what. And we stand in freedom to inherit a glorious eternity. And all who embrace freedom in Christ said, Amen.